Pod here. Today I'm joined by Jessica Layden of The Big Game in Sydney, Australia. Jessica has a master's degree in organizational psychology and works with C-suite leaders and leadership teams all over the world. In her own career, she has worked for WL Gore and Accenture internationally and locally. And she also serves on the faculty of the AGSM, the Australian Graduate School of Management, whose MBA program ranks in the top 10 in the world. We discussed the very important topic of burnout, a topic that is gaining both media attention, but also a pervasive spread throughout the executive ranks around the world at the moment. Jessica shares insight as to symptoms leading to burnout, but also tactics to manage at an individual level and a leadership team level. Under the rather hilarious titles of hypnotizing chickens and walking puppies, Jessica shares some everyday tactics that we can all deploy to help ourselves. We also take a look ahead into 2021 and what can leadership teams start doing now to make sure they are returning into 2021 with a sense of energy, rest, vigor, and kindness. Let's go. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? Welcome, Jessica, to another episode of The Leadership Diet. Thank you for having me. Great to see you again. I want to talk to you about leadership teams, particularly what you and I are noticing with teams during 2020. But before we go to that, let's jump to a topic that's, I think, developing into a really important topic, and that is the topic of burnout, particularly executive burnout. Mm -hmm. A study was released last week by the Global Leadership Wellbeing Survey, 3,300 executives looking at questions on their overall well-being and therefore lack of well-being. Mm-hmm. And in that survey, 80%, as in four out of five executives, said they felt they were at risk of burnout. And two-thirds of them said they were anxious at work and were carrying high levels of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. Now, they are big numbers. Let's start with the obvious question. What is burnout? Good question. Multifaceted, like most of these things. I think burnout is really different and experienced differently from what people are used to in terms of what they think about stress. And stress and burnout are quite distinct. So stress is what motivates us. We see stress as being activating. It gets someone up. It gets them focused. It normally increases their level of, you know, energy. I've got to get it done. It can make them um, narrow in their focus, shorter in their temper if they get interrupted. So it's a very different energy. Burnout is more like resignation. Burnout is when we hit that point where if I experience an exec in burnout, they are their emotional tone is flatter. It's like they've resigned within themselves. It's become that sense of overwhelm, like there's nothing left. It's almost a bit like a sense of hopelessness, that there is nothing left to give. So physically there's no petrol in the tank, but it's, there's, on top of that is an emotional mm-hmm. dearth as well. Yeah, that's yeah. that's how it feels for me when I'm around someone like that, for sure. Yeah. And 
it's not like that sort of hopelessness that we might experience in a depression situation, but it's certainly that feeling that there is just literally like they have run out of resources. That's how I find it. Yeah. And is 2020 different to other years in the sense of it has COVID-19 and everything that goes with that accelerated the notion of burnout? I think COVID is the year that keeps on giving. It's um, (laughs) so many levels. So many levels. I mean, what a perfect opportunity to explore the nuance of mental health. Um, COVID continues to give us, you know, opportunity after opportunity. This year has been phasic. I think for a lot of people, I would say that, um, albeit there are pockets where I have certain client organizations that I work in, there have been pockets where they've had increases in engagement, Mm -hmm. largely to do with the organization remaining successful Um, not needing to make people redundant and people having the resources to work from home largely and preferring that, they would be in the minority across the organisations that I work in. For the vast majority of organisations, I think this year has posed um, a series of challenges. The first of them was, you know, when the the pre-isolation time where it was, you know, shock, reaction, how do we bring together teams, but then how do we energise around that? So the energy around it, albeit it was... Um, from a fear-based reaction, there was a positive energy around it that was um, clearly intentional. We thought we knew what we were here to do. I mean, yeah. we, were, we were here to beat this thing and to be energised so that we could keep our businesses open, so that we could keep people in jobs. So really purposeful. Yeah. And as we know, that's so cohesive. The next stage, I think, was when we got a bit used to it. We're all in isolation at this stage. But we know in, after the end of that sort of new three-ish month period, we all think we know that it's going to be better. So we can maintain, we can be stoic. We all did our best at, you know, pulling together. We're in this together. And a lot of innovation happened during that period Beautiful. as well, which is really exciting. Absolutely. And that I think was really energizing. We saw some wonderful things happen. We saw things that people had wanted to do for years happen in a flash. And we saw different people coming to the fore because senior execs were deployed in different ways. We saw different people on teams coming up. And so voices across the organization had an opportunity to be heard in different ways. So for a lot of people, and I'm talking about people who are employed at this stage, not not talking about the broader negative impacts of COVID. But in those workforces, there was that still sense of energy possibility. We're in it together. We can we can get through this. Then, unfortunately, and I think you and I have talked about this a bit, we got to June 30, at least in Australia, where we'd been given the sense of, you know, a few months' focus. That's right. Financial year will kick in and the <laughs> yeah. world will reopen. I know. And then yeah. we all thought, gosh, you know, new financial year, 1st of July, it's all going to be great. You're going to have beaten COVID. We're going to feel so virtuous over it. It didn't work like that. And all of a sudden we got into the sense of like, oh, my goodness, this could actually be the new reality and we have no answer. We have no vaccine. We have no answer. We don't know what we're going to do. And what do you mean there might be a second wave? And then lo and behold, here it comes. There was a second wave. (laughs) And that was for me when I first experienced with my clients a pervasive sense of stress tipping over into burnout. And so the stress previously was there but it had been more energised and purposeful. And to burnout, we're quite specifically, um, there were clients who actually truly did burnout, who two were hospitalised, one was in the emergency ward, and this is across a fairly broad base of clients and people who in our normal working life we would see as people as being highly resilient, lots of great resources and strategies at their disposal, but the cumulative effect 
of trying to hold it together, of trying to model consistent, purposeful leadership to give people certainty, to give people a sense that they were going to be okay when there was no one there doing it for them. So that was when I started to see for senior executives the wheels getting wobbly and okay. then start to fall off. And what are, the, what are some of the symptoms that might show up just in advance of burnout? What I tend to notice is in a lead-up, if I deconstruct a couple of cases, this sense of everything is really, really important. Everything is equally important. Everything has to be done. And this overwhelming sense of it seems to be up to the individual to do it. So this, it's almost like you think about this over um, very much about the self yeah. at that stage where they're really looking to themselves to fix things. Yeah. And that over-responsibility seems to be a factor, at least as I'm thinking about certain cases here, not necessarily globally. So over-responsibility and then it seems to become quite consuming, all the things that need to be done. And then there seems to be a tipping point. Yep. And that tipping point is quite sharp. And it could go from someone just saying one small thing, like even saying, you know, it's okay to need to have a break. And we give them permission to, in inverted commas, kind of fall apart. So that would be what I'd be looking for. I mean, people who are really overburdened, people who aren't sharing the load, leadership teams that aren't working as leadership teams, but we have a couple of people on the team who are the ones who are carrying the majority of the load, mm -hmm. people wanting to create certainty for people in a space where there's not certainty rather than couching it in the sense of, look, none of us really know, but this is the decision that we're going with. Yep. Far more constructive for everyone rather than trying to deliver certainty. Also in parallel with people having to deliver a whole bunch of really difficult messaging to the business, to the market, to their investors. So all of that, the accumulation of those things is what leads us to that point. So, And for many leaders, of course, they're doing all that from their home oh, as with, they're trying to manage. With their kids in the background. Exactly right. you know? yeah. So a yeah. complete unknown experience for almost everybody mm -hmm. uh, at the moment. I can concur exactly what you said. I've, I've certainly, I've had two leaders who have been both hospitalized mm. um, for burnout-related mm -hmm. um, health concerns. And if I look at their previous weeks, from the limited opportunity I had to look at what they were doing or experiencing, decision fatigue, mm -hmm. absolutely, and then an inability to make decisions. And probably because of what you said, everything looked so important. So yeah. unable to differentiate between what I need to do or what's important was one example. Another example was unable to differentiate between we are doing well over here, yet all I'm focusing on is on the stuff we, we haven't got to. And I yeah. feel like everything is bad. No matter yeah. what we're doing, everything is bad. Mm -hmm. So a kind of an extra, extrapolation of the negative to everything that was happening. Yeah. And then the third thing I noticed was their lack of patience, which mm. historically these two leaders that I'm thinking of would have been very patient leaders, but mm. they were at their end. They were unable to be patient with normal life events and so for both of them they ended up in hospital and, and one of them has actually had to step down from their role as a result of that mm. um, and for the health perspective that's, that's the right thing for them i'm wondering is that the, the notion of boundaries like I, I read something here today and it really struck a chord at me the, the quotation was around, you know, we have always said, you know, work-life balance, it, there's a difference between work-life and balance. And that the author was saying, I think we're always delusional because, you know, our <laughs> lives have always bled into each other. Work has yes. bled into our home life and home life has bled into our work life. And certainly given the work that you do, 
That's exactly mm-hmm. what you notice mm-hmm. is, is trying to help people understand mm-hmm. that. But of course, now there's physical bleeding into everything. So it's mm-hmm. emotional, social, and physical. And I'm wondering, leaders who are looking at their boundaries who are completely blurred, how has this uh, impacted the notion of what could lead to burnout? It's a big one. We have a life. How we segment that life, how we choose what we focus on in that life is something that all of us could probably get benefit from reviewing a little more frequently than what we do. I think that would be the first thing I would say. The notion of being able to segment life is rarely successful. A couple, Some people can do that and some people need to work like that. But for the vast majority of people, particularly coming off the back of the context within which we're working and living now, the fusion of those things is something that we need to acknowledge, first of all, and to really recognise it for what it is and what the impacts of that are. So I think acknowledgement is the first step. The second step is to work at actually what do you want those components of life to be? I mean, let's go back to the really basic Covey stuff back in the 70s or 80s. You know, what are the components? What are the big rocks that you need? And how do we help clients to take several steps back to get perspective on that and to actually make some really conscious plans around what they want their life to look like? It's going to be an ideal. Of course, life doesn't necessarily look like that on a day-to-day basis, but I think that's really important. I think the idea about working out what are their boundaries that work for them and their family at this point in time, recognising it will probably be different next week, and to have the flexibility and the skills to have the conversations to negotiate the boundaries that work for you, for your family, for your colleagues, for everyone else that needs some of your space and your time. And I think the other thing that we need to do at this time is to give people the permission to remind them that it does all begin and end with them. Leaders who are not looking after themselves, and you and I could, I mean, we can talk for hours on this, but who are not able to work out their needs, what we need right now, how it is that I support myself and my system, they're the ones who are going to be the ones at highest risk. And they also then unfortunately model that down through all the networks that they're involved, be it their family, be it with their children, be it with their colleagues, be it with their teams, be it with their organisations. And that's when we really start to get into some very unhelpful cycles where we're seeing those behaviours propagated down through organisations. I think that last point is fundamentally important, is if you aren't able to or willing to take the effort Mm. to manage yourself, Mm. manage meaning take care of yourself in in, in this particular conversation, no one else can do it for you for a start. But if you're in a leadership role, you're you're setting that Mm. model for everybody else. And eventually you'll start leading suboptimally because you you haven't got the capacity to do so. Yeah, it's just so true. And to challenge people's assumptions around what leadership means and the sort of stoic element of leadership that some people over-amplify where it doesn't allow them to access that vulnerability to identify what they actually really need and to be able to ask for help Mm. on occasion, accept help from other people. They sound like fundamental human behaviours that we do, but actually a lot of people are out of touch with that. And so I think when we drill down, you know, what sits beneath that in that space of vulnerability is this sense of self-compassion, to be able to reflect upon our needs and to be able to care for ourselves. With that compassion is is permission. I'm giving myself permission yes. to do these things. Mm. 
I've, I've certainly had a big conversation with a leader only two weeks ago around, mm-hmm. you know, this particular person was questioning, is compassion useful? And mm-hmm. so we had a big, great conversation around it. And, and where we landed was, if it gives you nothing else other than permission mm-hmm. to do stuff for yourself, yep. it will enable you to be a more effective leader. Mm. Is that a good thing? Mm-hmm. And we both agreed yes mm. at that point. And this particular leader had not thought about at that point that they needed rest during the day because mm-hmm. they had been they had found themselves because mm-hmm. boundaries are blurred going from 10 hours a day to now working 14 hours a day absolutely use the commute the time all of a sudden yeah the commute time is gone <laughs> it's right i read yesterday microsoft teams have introduced a thing called the virtual commute Perfect. because you know, they recognize mm-hmm. people used to use commute time for mm-hmm. reflection or learning or downturning it's not happening so it's yeah. now within that platform is a thing called virtual commute um, and for this particular leader it was about giving themselves permission for that mm. Permission's a big part of it. Huge think. part of it. Yeah. I was reminded of that actually. Is, uh, I, I was involved in a study a couple of years ago called The Daily Habits of Exceptional Leaders. Mm-hmm. So these are leaders who were deemed in the eyes of other people to be exceptional. So it wasn't yeah. the study wasn't looking at that. The study was looking at what are the habits they have at home mm-hmm. before work and after work mm-hmm. that allow them to show up to work in a fashion that other people deemed to be exceptional. That, that yeah. was the purpose of the study. But one of the things was the reflection time mm-hmm. en route to work mm. and en route home, yep. particularly at the end of the day and the amount of those leaders who actually took time to walk home in order to mm. defrag yeah. almost. And I'm noticing leaders at the moment are not able to overtly do that because there is no commute home. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And so how is it that we work with people to identify those things that they can be doing? One client that I have still gets dressed for work because that for that person is really, really important, the whole thing of putting on a suit and a tie. Now, yeah. most people are relishing the fact of not doing that, but for that person, the putting on of work clothes, the taking off of work clothes mm-hmm. is part of that transition. For other people, it's going for the walk at the end of the day, sort of yelling out to the family, work's over, I'll be back in half an hour, getting some space outside. For some people, it might be exercise. For some people, it might be tidying their desk, putting everything away, people who are working on the kitchen table, for heaven's sakes, yeah. you know, who need to do that. But to have something that puts closure that signals to you and to those within the place where you're working, be it family or flatmates or whoever, that you're available in a different way. That's a really important transition. And I'm transitioning from the end of my workday to the beginning of my evening time or whatever that transition is. My next role. I think the challenge is, though, for many people now, they're having to to transition within the workday. So I have a client who um, homeschooling children, Victoria, both parents are working at home. So you need to transition in and out and in and out and in and out. And that causes phenomenal amounts of stress. And to be able to have that tension that you're never meeting anybody's needs properly, to be carrying that every day, and I think that's an insidious um, negative for individuals to be carrying. So how is it that we can help people to talk about that openly? And how is it that we recognise with people that this is a pressure happening in more households than you're aware? And if we only say, you know, if we're giving people directives, I mean, get off Zoom, seriously. Yeah. Just get off. Stop having so many meetings. It's nice to have the incidental meetings, but let's have, we talk about having one hour for lunch or something for people. That's great if people can do that. But how about actually really, really being conscious of saying, do we need to be online for this meeting? Is this actually a 15-minute call rather than a one-hour meeting? Yeah. yeah. To be really... Um, quite ruthless in how we prioritise our demands on other people's time, not just our own time. 
in one sense, it's rather easy to talk about the pervasiveness of burnout, mm. and it is because yeah. it is becoming more pervasive. It's absolutely, it is less easy to talk about what are some of the tactics we can do to to manage that. Mm-hmm. I read an interview with the founder of Headspace recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Headspace being one of the mindful apps that's taken around the world. Potential Project have another one called the Mindful Leader, mm-hmm. which Julian Coos talked about a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. They've got seventy clinical trials running right now and twenty peer reviewed studies yeah. on on the on the use of their product. Mm-hmm. And two stats hit me for frontline workers using four meditation sessions of 10 minutes each Mm -hmm. reduces stress by 14 percent now that's stress 30 days of a regular meditation or mindfulness type practice in one of their studies reduces burnout by 32 percent it's amazing that's a phenomenal Mm -hmm. piece Mm -hmm. that talks to what is the practice or tactic that i as a person and therefore as a leader can implement for myself. And and in this case, this was a, a 10 minute process, 30 days in a row. Mm. I know you talk about two fabulously worded tactics, <laughs> hypnotizing chickens and walking puppies as two umbrella topics for simple I tactics. Do. I do. They've always grabbed my attention because the names mm-hmm. are just brilliant. Mm-hmm. But, but what is hypnotizing chickens and what is walking puppies as a tactic? Okay. So Many of the senior execs we work with carry, even in times that aren't COVID times, they carry with them an elevated level of stress, of overcommitment. And so what I use is a huge amount of humour and simplification with my clients. I mean, you know I have a very strongly reverent streak. And so I think it's I important. I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important that we just normalise that the world is complex, we are all making it up. When things get difficult, let's make it really simple. And I think giving my clients permission to make things really, really simple is something that they are extremely grateful for because someone says to them, just stop and we're just going to be like a puppy for a few weeks. So your job for the next two weeks till we have our session is to get lots and lots of sleep and then we work on strategies for how they do that. It's like the little puppy when you first bring it home. Get lots of water, eat really good food. And get some basic exercise. No, you do not need to be down at the gym, you know, lifting weights with a trainer, but something that moves your body regularly throughout the day. We're just going to do that for two weeks. So you don't mean them to run around the house chewing cushions? No, I don't. No, or peeing on the carpet. (laughs) But, you know, it's a sense of just make it simple. Right. Make it as simple as possible. Like Sleep well, drink water, basic exercise. Yeah, and some good food, mm-hmm. you know. Now, the other part that we don't work on with our puppies, they do. Pro- puppies do provide it. They provide that, you know, warmth and social contact, you know, but that's the other part that we would add in there. But it really is trying to make it as basic as possible for people just to go, just stop and do this. Because sometimes the most senior executives, the people that we always assume have it all together, um, actually not sometimes, Never does anyone ever have it all together. And so someone who can stop and reflect back and go, hey, this is what I'm noticing. Let's just simplify and let's see what happens as a result of that. So that's one thing. So it's either hypnotizing chickens, that whole thing, you know, just shut the system down and make it as simple as possible for someone to step back to their most effective because it's a stepwise process and it requires ongoing vigilance. We never hit it and stay there. It's Mm -hmm. always constant vigilance, constant tracking. And so when we've got clients or leaders that we're working with who aren't curious about themselves, who aren't that interested in building their self-awareness and self-monitoring, again, it becomes another watch out for us. How is it that we make it safe for them to do that reflection and to do that work? And so I'll draw on models that make it feel as simple and as accessible and normal as possible. And it always starts with the physical. Saying that, just quickly, I will say though, 
I have been delighted to see over the years the number of clients who take up a meditation practice. This year has certainly been an accelerator of it, and I think it's good. It's not panacea to cure all ills, but any strategy that gives someone the chance just to sit for 10 minutes a day and to learn to build some of these habits around watching thoughts, creating a bit of a space for themselves Mm -hmm. to create further optionality, I think is brilliant. And equally, I guess today we're talking about the individual, but I think equally we need to recognise there is a limit on strategies. We need to look at the entire system here, and possibly this is another day, but we need to look at what we're creating in organisations and how it is that we make them places that are human, not overly focused on having everyone in roles that are so stressful. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. Well, I know you've been talking recently about the notion of amplifying the human focus Mm. in 2021 Mm -hmm. and beyond. So I want to come to that in a few minutes. The notion of walking puppies or hypnotizing chickens is a, is a way of going, let's break this down into the real basic mm-hmm. tactics that always work, yep. such as drinking lots of water, sleeping, getting good night's sleep, being mm-hmm. eight plus hours a night, uh, eating good food, going for an exercise, be it a walk or whatever, and then okay. build up from there. Mm-hmm. What I love about that is if you are anywhere overwhelmed, it takes away the decision criteria from you. I can go out for a walk. It yeah. doesn't require membership to a gym. It, it just doesn't. requires walking. Yeah. It doesn't. And you know, when we get into higher levels of that, when we move beyond the first stage of that, one of the things I get people to do at the next level is let's make a list of the things that you love. Let's make a list of the things that give you joy, that lift your mood, that lift your spirit and stick it on the fridge so that when you feel overwhelmed, you never have to make a decision because it's there. And you just pick a number and go number four, whatever number four is on the list, I'll do that. And I think this thing that you're talking about here around this decision making, how is it that we make it simple for each other? Because it's really, we make a lot really complex. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate to go back to it, but no, there is not one right way. Something that worked for you today may not work next week. So how is it that we overall build our our wisdom, our cadre of tools and resources and our readiness and comfort to be able to select amongst those things? And I yeah. think that's what we add value to our clients because we this is where we live. We live in that space of creating options and creating strategies. Exactly right. I had to revisit my studies in positive psychology to remind myself of some yeah. basic options. <laughs> I found myself over the last three months being almost daily obsessed with um, watching a non-Australia country and its political system and, and just observing that and you know going to bed at night time looking forward to reading the news as soon as I wake up mm. in the morning and of course it's all bad news it's one drama followed by another drama and I, I found myself having to switch off some of those notifications yeah. just because it was constant bombarding of bad news and I noticed some of my friends and clients who were in Melbourne for the last few weeks in, in lockdown they talk about having to turn off the daily reminder of, of mm. COVID cases and what, what's the daily total mm-hmm. today etc and, and we know from positive psychology if you're going to keep exposing yourself to bad news that's that that is the attention level is looking for the bad news in the in the environment it is and people often are so unconscious about the inputs so when you get people to really pause and think about you know who are the people that most influence your thinking what are the sources it's often quite revealing to people to recognize ah I'm seeing how this could be related to my mood and to the vagaries of, you know, mood. Exactly that. I think, you know, the political situation is a classic. News reports, anything that gets beyond our control, it really does not, you know, is it helpful or is it harmful? Simple questions like that to bring ourselves back to. 
One last uh, tactic here that uh, is not new to this conversation, it's been around for a long time, but the idea of gratitude Mm-hmm. as being a precursor to positive sins. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you accelerate your gratitude often comes from doing good for other people, yeah. you know, noticing or mm-hmm. observing or helping other people. And the amount of folks I have shared that simple idea with in the last few months mm-hmm. who have come back to me later going, I've instilled every single day I'm doing just one thing for mm-hmm. somebody else. And it might be simple as I'm, I bought a stranger a cup of coffee yeah. for whatever it is. But their report back is, I just feel better. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It is. It's, it's a great thing. And, to do something for someone else, it momentarily takes our focus on ourselves. As fascinating as we might be, we're not that interesting really. And to put our focus somewhere else where it can actually be a cause for a positive impact, why wouldn't you? Let's move on to teams. So we've been talking about individuals and, of course, individuals scale together, become a team. But what have you noticed about leadership teams specifically over the last few months in terms of the journey they've been through and where are they now in that reactive sense to the world around us? Highly variable. The teams that I think have got through it most positively by any registering of, you know, team effectiveness are the ones I think where their businesses have been more largely, you know, unaffected or in fact accelerated through this process. Because, you know, when things are going positively, what a surprise. It makes it easier for us to cohese as a team. The teams I think that are struggling more are where there is change even more so than, you know, what we're all expecting at the moment. And so the struggle I think for teams is we don't see each other. New people come onto the team, they've never met anybody, they've never seen anybody. We don't necessarily have very good skills yet for inducting people, onboarding people in a way that feels meaningful, that feels very human at the moment. And the other part of it is, you know, old team theory would say, you know, whenever we bring a new person onto the team, you know, we reshape the team, we need to revisit our purpose, come together around that. And that's not happening because there are so many changes. And so I think they're the things that teams are struggling with, a sense of disconnection, a sense of many of the leaders' focus has been down the organisation through their teams, trying to, you know, back to creating certainty for their teams, but no one's doing it for them. And some organisations bring them together as a group of peers well at the senior exec level, but most of them I think are having a and needing them to really focus on their area mm-hmm. more. And so that teaming at senior exec level I see is happening less. Now that the... Now that the crisis navigation isn't happening in the same way. Yeah. So what's the potential impact of that going forward? Multiple, I would hypothesize. Again, I think we will see less likelihood that we're going to pick up the stressors that we're each experiencing. We'll probably see more fragmentation of organizations. Worst case scenario, we'll be getting back to more siloed orientation. I think that it transmits down the organisation where people see then that their leaders aren't working together as much and that their leaders probably aren't as available as a cohort as much. And so that creates its own, you know, stories down through the organisation about what's really going on. Does it impact trust and people's belief in that top 10 purpose? Probably, probably. And I think going into 2021, I think we're going to have a lot more challenges on the horizon. It's not things aren't going to be, in inverted commas, better. I think we're going to have to work through some enduring difficulties and we really need top teams to be cohesive and equally open 
to the amazing array of voices that they have down through their organisations as well. And I think that's going to be challenging if those teams aren't really clear on what their purpose is. And that purpose, as we've found out this year, it can change day to day. So how do they stay nimble? How do they stay adaptable? How do they stay in conversation when they're working virtually? If there's one thing at that team level, it will be to continue to challenge each other. Are we leading through conversation? What are the courageous conversations we need to be having now? What do we need to be talking about that we're avoiding? Those sorts of habits and practices as a team and reviewing it at the end of whenever the team comes together, I think are going to help to bridge you know, yeah. to a slightly better, more cohesive yeah. teaming future. To your earlier point, February through to kind of May of 2020, mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of fantastic work done by many, many leadership teams on what's our fast needed sudden reaction to the crisis and mm-hmm. how do we manage to move from an all-in-one building to working from home process. Yeah. Done very, very well by, I would imagine, lots and lots of leadership teams. Moving to, we can now innovate in ways that we haven't done before. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic. Yeah. And as you said earlier astounding on- Astounding. Astounding on occasions, cases. for sure. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, I was uh, talking to Dan Fleming from St. Vincent's Hospital Network recently, who was going to come up in a future episode of this podcast, mm-hmm. talking about a, a major innovation that St. Vincent's Hospital Network did in six weeks, which typically would have taken 12 months before mm-hmm. now. And was just serviced a part of the market that, that they service in a way they had never done as fast. Yep. So extraordinary leadership <clears> on many levels. But as you said, Ariana, I was moving towards by July 1, we'll all be back to normal. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not the case. I was thinking recently around, so what does this team purpose mean for leadership mm-hmm. teams going forward? And two different stories emerging from this. One leader I spoke to recently, who in my view is one of the best leaders I've ever met, mm-hmm. talked about that 2020 has clarified for her that leadership team only has three things. Mm-hmm. One is clarity, give clarity to yep. the organization. Number two, communicate yep. about decisions that are made or decisions we have yet to make. Mm-hmm. And three, cascade learnings as fast as we possibly mm-hmm. can. I thought, how simple is that? But how brilliant is that? Now, it she is. landed on those three things through many, many experiences and mm-hmm. debates and dialogues and learnings. But nonetheless, I think those three things sum it up. And if, if a leadership team is able to gather around those, mm-hmm. make sense for themselves of the, what that means for their nuance, I think they'll go a long way to to working together in a more cohesive way going forward. It's really interesting because I agree with you. I agree with you on the three C's that you've outlined there. And the thing for me that I'm sort of picturing them is how is it that we make the ground upon which we do those things one that gives trust? Because that's what I think is going to be what determines how we go forward because this new way newer way of working this speed at which we're working i think it requires that we offer more trust and in the way people work in how they choose their work and that to me is an an important part of that it's almost like the soil within which those behaviors need to exist yeah and of course, trust itself is not a physical thing. It's it's a it's an enabler of other things, but without it, other things often don't happen or don't certainly don't happen anywhere near as well. Yeah, and if we don't know what they are for each of us, because trust isn't a blanket thing. It's not one thing for us that we both agree on. Mm. So I think through that element of conversation and communication, I think we don't want to underestimate the importance of having trust front and centre, what builds and what breaks trust for each of us going forward. I sat in a conversation with a leadership team recently in, in the uh, in industrial sector and mm-hmm. they, they did a timeline of here's all the things that happened in 2020 that we had to deal with as a leadership team. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, they went, let's look at all the stuff that we knew where we had to deal with. Yep. 
And then let's look at all the stuff that came unexpectedly Surprise. on top of all of that <laughs> and how we dealt with it. Mm. And then to go, just let's give ourselves a score out of 10 mm. of how we did, you know, within the limit of, of our, how well, they did. How well we did okay. as a team in leading in all of that change. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 out of 10, meaning we did the best we possibly could with the constraints that we had. Mm-hmm. I, we couldn't change COVID as example. Yeah. But what I loved about the conversation was, let's say they landed at, I think they said they landed at seven out of 10. I can't mm-hmm. remember what the number was. They then had a conversation of, so why was it not an eight? Yeah. Or why was it not a six? And that became the great conversation. It's a great one. It, it allowed surface was, <clears throat> but actually, here's where we actually made mistakes. Mm. Or for, in my view, for us to be an eight out of 10 in that situation, I would have needed X from you. Mm. And you didn't give X, nor did I know I needed it before then. Mm. And it allowed a great conversation yeah. to be had. I'll, I'll go look at that team and go, I don't know whether they were seven, five, six out of 10, who, who cares? Mm. What they have done now though, is they have learned from it in a way yes. that they wouldn't have done without that conversation. Mm. There's so much in that example, I think for teams to look at that simple thing of, you know, taking our learnings and taking our experiences and sticking them up on a board and mapping them together and talk about what really went on for me at the high point for the low point. I think that's a really powerful team's technique to be working on. We can talk about that another day. (laughs) Going into 2021, my sense is for leadership teams to be successful in 2021, it's going to require a little bit of back to basics and get the fundamentals Mm -hmm. humming. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking of when you think of fundamentals for a leadership team and leaders in a leadership team? And if they're able to, if they're able to come back in end of January and put these into place, what might mm-hmm. they be? Be really clear on what our focus is and for how long. So work out what our purpose is and what's the time constraint around that. Be really clear about each person's role on the team and what we need from each person, the real reason why they're there, what they build, what their ad is. Um, so good team theory, you know. Um, and then I think to carry forward in our learning the sensitivity to individual needs, to be able to flex with how we work with each other. I think those things will be really important in terms of team functioning. I love the three C's that you were talking about with your client before. I think that's a great framework to look at and to be able to communicate consistently down through organisations what we know and, more importantly, what we don't know and what we're making our decisions based on, recognising that everything could change in a heartbeat because no one really knows what's going on. So I think they're the sorts of practices. But I think a gentleness would be nice to take into the next year, actually, a bit of gentleness and a bit of kindness because people have never gone through, I mean, none of us have lived through anything like this. And I just have this hope um, that through all of this, we allow ourselves to stay open to what it is to build organisations where people can thrive. Mm -hmm. And it sounds a bit cliched, but, you know, where you can actually show up as fully you. And imagine if we took that into the year where we recognise that everyone's so phenomenally quirky, but if we allow people to work from that and we trust them to bring their best and to contribute in the way that they're meant to, to the goals that we have as an organisation, I just have a feeling that it will help us to shape organisations that are nicer to be in and that over time become more robust and more effective. Alongside that, I would add clarity from 2020, I hope will look like in 2021 for a leadership team is 
what meetings are we in and what meetings oh. are we just going to say <laughs> goodbye to because they yes. we don't need them. We don't. And if we, we are don't. in them, do they have to be an hour? Mm. Can they be 45 minutes? Can they be 25 minutes? Can it be a 10-minute phone call? Mm. But get far more skilled ruthless. and ruthless. Mm. And I think ruthless yeah. is, is part of being kind. It being is. kind to ourselves and our organization by being ruthless or where we spend our time. And and to take the double step, think about should I be there? But then to have that more holistic step going, should they be there? I mean, am I going to put this diary meeting in for you? Do we really need to do it this way? Is it a five-minute phone conversation or is this where we need to come together on Zoom, have a long conversation to do that? And that's to me there's that mutual aspect of the ruthlessness because everyone is exhausted. And who wants to carry that feeling forward into the new year? We want people to come back to work refreshed however they do that but to be able to carry that sense of refreshment and rejuvenation across the year the worst is when we get clients back to work and they're two or three days and i'm going okay so have you still got that holiday feeling they're like i parked it at the door that's right you know and yet how often does that happen what would would it look like if we had that as part of our intention going forward for 2021 and beyond to keep that feeling of a the whole person and all of their complex needs, you know, is part of our model of organisations. Yep. Given all of the wisdom you've uh, oh, developed, experienced gosh. and even shared with us today, <laughs> and we know we haven't shared all of your wisdom, <laughs> <laughs> looking back now at the 35-year-old version of you, mm-hmm. what, what would you now be telling that person? Mm, undoubtedly, it would be to share ideas, strategies, experiences like we are today, but to have been doing that much more publicly from back then because I think like anyone who does, who's been doing what they do for a long time and who does, whose work is an extension of who they are, if that makes sense, um, it's so intrinsic that I just think everybody gets it and everyone knows it. But I think um, that's always gotten in the way of me sort of putting ideas out there, probably talking more about what's possible or writing or whatever. So it would be just to go, look, just stop editing, stop worrying that someone else has said it before and put it out there. Join some podcasts somewhere. And- join some <laughs> join some podcasts. <laughs> and my last question, Jessica, and you know I ask this of everyone because if I'm, if I'm nothing, I'm a music person. Mm-hmm. What is your favourite song or your favourite band? So I can't tell you how stressful I find this question because... <laughs> Putting stuff out there and all that. <laughs> no, because it's that sense of, you know, we talk about multiplicity of selves. Each of my selves has different songs that they love. So everywhere from, you know, those classic songs that I would love from the 60s, a whole bunch of music as a period. My love to go dancing self is extremely partial to all disco. I love any song that I can belt out singing at loud volume while I'm driving (laughs) or when I'm going around the house because everything can be turned into a song. Mm -hmm. And then I have songs that I don't know, that you just love, like Florence and the Machine, Who's Got the Love, and um, David Bowie, any of David Bowie's early work. Station to Station would have to be one of my favourite pieces. I do love that song and I haven't heard it in a while, so I think mm. we'll have to grab both Florence and the Machine and David Bowie for the show notes and say uh, these are two of Jessica's. <laughs> two of my favourites because I can't pick. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, it's a pleasure to chat with you and to hear the wisdom that you have to impart as well as a very practical tactics that people can take and deploy we'd have to have you back for lots more conversations so you don't have to edit and you can share your ideas beautiful thank you loved being here lots of fun thanks pat 
Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jessica Layton. I regularly talk to her and walk away inspired or at least having found something new to think about in a way I hadn't before. And when I think about this podcast, it strikes me there's at least four or five great ideas that are worth repeating and summarizing. At the individual level, her symptoms of what could become burnout really struck me as being important to underline and reiterate. The sense of everything is all important and it's all up to me, which then becomes an overly focused sense of me in myself is the first major symptom that's worth recognizing that then leads to it's all the responsibility that only I have, which then becomes consuming for me. And eventually, as, as Jessica said, there's a tipping point which is very sharp. And so they are the symptoms to watch out for in yourself or indeed your colleagues when you notice you or others being overwhelmed. The other area that she talked about, which is not a new topic by any means, but 2020 has put a whole new lens onto this. And that is this fallacy, I believe, of work-life balance. Any leader I've ever met who is very successful in leadership is able to understand that life is life and their work and their home life bleeds into each other and always has. But what 2020 has done is put a non-segregation in a physical sense. Many of us are, here we are in October, November, many of us are still working from home, sometimes out of choice, but sometimes not. And when our loved ones are also working from home, there is no physical separation between home and work and all of my life. And one of Jessica's notions is, now is even more important to have a conscious plan at your life level, i.e., consciously stop to look at what is it I am wanting to do with my life, not at a, necessarily at, a, at an existential point of view, but in terms of what brings me joy into my life and how do I have a plan or at least a default list to go to that sits on the fridge that when I want to segregate my work and my, my personal life, I have a list that I use regularly to remind me of what brings me joy and plan for that. The leadership point that she that she underlined really importantly was no one else can do it for you. Like if you don't do this for yourself, no one else can. And as a leader, role modeling how to lead yourself during times of stress is really important because ultimately, if you don't do that, you will end up leading suboptimally. And then the team you're leading will follow that trajectory. So how do you consciously take some time to plan and execute what's important for you in your overall life, given the restraints and the unusual nature of 2020? At a team perspective, what I loved about what Jessica said today was, as a good reminder of team theory, and that is when any new leader joins a leadership team, or indeed any team, a, the team slows down to the level of capability of that person until they come up to speed in terms of um, speed to competency. But also, if you're sitting on a leadership team, it is worthy to take, it may be, it'll be a short time, but revisiting the team purpose so that everyone recalibrates with this new person who's joined that team and they get on board as quick as possible. 
So it could be a short conversation as part of your weekly or monthly meeting, or it could be a dedicated conversation that you set set aside for that. But how do you remember to revisit that conversation on team purpose every time a new team member joins? And with the speed of 2020 and beyond, how do you have that conversation regularly anyway? Because the sense of team and its purpose can often fluctuate and change. And then the last thing that we talked about, which I think is a really great exercise and conversation for any team to have, is the notion of let's review 2020 and how we led together. And the steps that Jessica and I outlined in that are number one, on a piece of butcher paper or any kind of board, outline over a timeline, let's say January to June and then July to December, all of the major changes that were coming in 2020 that we knew about. Then step two, on top of that list, add in all the changes that came into 2020 that we were not expecting, that came knocking on our door, and chart those. Then step number three is, in a different coloured pen, ideally, let's chart all the different emotions that we experienced over that timeline. All the positive emotions, all the scary emotions, all the negative emotions at an individual level, a team level, a family level a neighborhood and society level, because 2020 has had, had all of that. Let's get them onto that chart. And then step back and review, so what does all that mean? Then step number four is, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the best, one being the worst, within the perimeters of our influence, i.e. our leadership at our best within the constraints of what we can do, let's give ourselves a number. How well did we go? And then the last step, Whatever the number was, why was it not another number? Why was it not a 10 or a 9? Why was it not a 3 or a 4? And have that conversation. Because it's in that conversation that the learnings come out. And the learnings are where you and the team can embed down for future crisis or future existential situations. Here's how we do well. And here's the areas that we need to keep leaning into to make sure that we keep improving as a team. Because if we don't do it, nobody else will. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to www.theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blogs, and retrieve the show notes from each episode. Every show note has links to whatever resources were mentioned by our guest, including their favorite song or band. And the best way you can support this podcast is by subscribing and sharing it with your colleagues and friends so they can hear the insights from our guests as well. Thank you.